Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. A uh, couple of little things I'd like to go over before we get into the uh, question answering phase of the show. This has not generally been a show where I have uh, responded to current events or tried to talk about that in the news or something particularly, but I do feel that given some of the things that have been going on over the last couple of weeks here in the United States, I do feel some commentary is in order um, because we have some pretty serious stuff going down lately with the situation in North Korea situation even with the president's remarks about Venezuela and over the last couple days um, the situation in Charlottesville. These are uh, all, you know, in one form or another a result of a lack of critical thinking. And the point that I wanted to make was uh, not really a partisan political one. It is really the point that the whole effort of my channel is to endorse critical thinking and show uh, with the examples I've given of the videos that I've made about Scientology, about uh, Mormonism, about the Jehovah's Witnesses, about Bill Gothard's cult, all of these are extremist examples of when a belief system goes wrong and the abuse and, the, and the, even the violence that can occur as a result of people not applying critical thinking skills to a belief system, but instead letting the belief system run rampant and using it to justify wholly irrational behavior. Um, I, I don't condone any of that, and I get you know, nonsense uh, sometimes in the comments about how I'm leftist and how I'm this and how I'm that, which really misses the broader point, because critical thinking done right is a nonpartisan activity. And it's not a matter of using critical thinking skills to justify or rationalize a position uh, what we really should be using our critical thinking skills for is how to make the world a better place and how to get along with each other and how to be more tolerant and understanding and uh, in, you know, good uh, relations with one another, whether that is with our fellow, uh, you know, people in our city, in our neighborhood, in our state or in our country or in the international uh, community, in the international world. Right? That is a, a, a goal I have with all of the things that I'm doing here. And so I have uh, put a link to the critical thinking videos that I've made. I've put them all into a playlist and they, that link is below here. And I'm just going to you know, put out there that that content is there for you to watch and hopefully learn something from. As I have been learning, I've been making those videos. This is no claim that I know better than everybody else. It is a claim that I have been learning things and I'm trying to share them with everybody else in order to make, you know, make things uh, more peaceful, more rational, and more uh, sane. So anyway, just wanted to kind of throw that out there as an effort on my part. So. With that being said, um, one other thing that I wanted to really quickly uh, bring up is that there were some more Patreon uh, supporters coming on board this week that I wanted to acknowledge personally here in this video, and that was Klaus Olson, Jenny Rose White, Carolyn Stacy, and Sonia Mallet, who uh, upped her uh, monthly pledge. I want to thank all of you for coming on board on my Patreon campaign. And also, um, if for those of you who don't know, the first target that I set on Patreon was to hit 750 a month. And if I hit that, 
then I would turn this show, the Critical Q&A show, into a podcast and put it up as audio podcast also. So I have my Sensibly Speaking podcast, but I would add the Critical Q&A show on a weekly basis. So if you're interested in that, then uh, come on board my Patreon campaign and let's get to that target and then I can start doing that. All right, let's go ahead and get on with your uh, questions now. Here we go. Crackpot. I'm not sure if you've answered this already, but have you had any noteworthy moments after leaving Scientology where you go, whoa, I had that all backwards. I can't believe I ever thought otherwise or anything of that nature that comes to mind. Yeah, actually, I have that happen all the time. And when I talk about being in a recovery process from a destructive cult, Scientology, I'm talking about having those moments kind of over and over and over again. Because uh, you strip away, like, a, like layers of an onion, you, you strip away these ideas and, and thought processes and patterns and, and concepts that are instilled by the um, L. Ron Hubbard's teachings, in my case. And, uh, and you see the world differently as a result. And this is actually one of the reasons why I'm such a proponent of critical thinking is because it allows, you know, when you're, when you're looking at the world that way or using critical thinking tools to examine information or examine past beliefs or past ideas, um, it, it allows you to kind of be a bit more objective about it. And, um, but there's still the, you know, the biases and the cognitive dissonance and the various things that go on. And so, so it's a gradual process, stripping some of this stuff away. But there are all kinds of things that I used to be, that I used to feel so sure of, so certain about when I was in Scientology as to, you know, why people act the way they do, or why I acted the way I did, or what's the right thing to be thinking, or, you know, what happens after we die. I mean, so many things. And all of that, so many of those things have just gone by the wayside. And now I look back on them. And I just, I, I'm, I'm kind of flummoxed that I believed some of it. Some more obvious than others, which actually is the thing that sparked me doing this series that I'm doing now on the Scientology basics and taking it all apart. And those videos aren't coming out once a week because I'm taking a really good hard look at Scientology's belief system and the, the methods and techniques of the practice of Scientology and the, the philosophic you know, framework of it. And the more I'm looking at this and the more I'm looking into where Hubbard came up with these ideas and how I used to, you know, use them, um, the, the, the more distance I'm getting from it and the, I feel like the more um, objectivity I'm getting in, in regards to those beliefs, right? And, uh, and that's been a really good process for me personally, right? So I would, you know, I'd encourage this kind of thing for anybody who's uh, you know, when I talk about education being a very important component of, of cult recovery, this is kind of the sort of thing I'm talking about. And the video that I did a few weeks ago on study tech is a good example of, of what I'm talking about because I was fully immersed in study tech. And I thought, you know, having a dictionary and looking up words all the time and even the little demonstrations and that sort of thing, I thought all that stuff was, was really important. I thought, it was, I thought it was crucial to a good education that you have those tools available to you and that you use them to learn things. And after doing all the research, right, uh, all the stuff I've done over the last few years, but then specifically researching that topic 
and looking at education uh, in a kind of a more skeptical light, looking at the, at the study tech in a more skeptical light, it really put some things in perspective and it made me look at it and go, man, I spent such a long time being a proponent of that. And it wasn't that it, it, here was an example of a case where I wasn't like, oh my God, that's totally off the rails. How could I have ever thought that? It was more of it just came down in its importance level. There's nothing wrong with looking up words in a dictionary. So dictionaries are for. But this idea that that's the single thing that causes people to not be able to learn is ridiculous. It's absolutely ludicrous. And so you kind of remove that off the pedestal, right? That's what happened to me in, in doing the, the, you know, that video. So, um, so I think that's given me more perspective on stuff. And there's, you know, I never learned about the OT levels when I was in Scientology. So I never had to come out of that whole thought haze, you know, but, um, but the idea of the reactive mind and, and you know, going clear and, and the various mental mechanisms that exist um, that Hubbard says exists, right? And looking at those more, more skeptically and, and, you know, well, is this the thing or isn't this the thing? You know, that kind of, kind of uh, a look at those, right, has really given me a lot of uh, uh, perspective on just how, how kooky a lot of Hubbard's uh, assertions were. And also, I have to say, um, listening to Hubbard now, <laughs> like his lectures, is a whole different experience than when I was in Scientology. I mean, night and day difference. I, I, you know, it's not that I can't stand the guy, it's that I listen to him and I just like, how did I ever give this any credence? I mean, he's so wandering around and so wordy and so, uh, he, he takes, you know, there was a lecture I was looking at the other day researching my next video on the Scientology basics thing, and he spends an hour doing a lecture rambling all over the field, I mean, here and there and here and there, and doesn't get to the point of the lecture, which is actually what the lecture was, was titled, right, for about 45 minutes. He's wandering around all over the place and then finally settles in and, and makes his point, which takes about 10 minutes to do. And then the lecture's over. And I just thought, you know, when I was in Scientology, I would have been spending so much time trying to understand all the significance and importance of all of this stuff he was talking about before he got around to making the point of the lecture. And now I look at it and I can see that he's just rambling. You know, so it's a whole different, whole different perspective on things. And so I kind of, I, I would answer this question by saying that all of Scientology is kind of like, what was I thinking, you know? Um, and that's kind of where I'm at now. And I'm, you know, I'll continue giving this information out uh, to you guys as we go through these basics and see if we can't uh, deconstruct these things so that maybe uh, current and certainly hopefully former uh, Scientologists can watch this series and kind of deconstruct these ideas in the same way that I've been doing and hopefully recover from the whole thing faster as a result. Lisa Kovacs, I'm curious about a couple of things. Does the Sea Organization's billion-year contract state anything about what the Church of Scientology will do for members who make this commitment? Also, have medical liaisons or supervisors ever suggested that the sick go to their disconnected family to ask for money for medical needs? So don't contact your family, but well, it's okay to do so now that you are sick. Hey Lisa, thanks for the questions. So I'm gonna actually post a graphic here of the Sea Org contract so you can see that 
all it is is a symbolic um, expression of uh, willing servitude to Scientology for the next billion years. That's, it's, a, it's a totally symbolic gesture. There's nothing legally binding about the billion-year contract or anything about it that offers any sort of exchange or anything like that. All of that is contained, the exchange and the services you get for free and all that stuff is contained in the legal contracts that Sea, that sea Org members sign. And they sign the same contracts that Class 5 staff members, the regular city office staff members sign. Same thing. In fact, they're even supposed to renew them every five years, right? So if you're in the Sea Org every five years, you're supposed to, you know, re-sign on these staff contracts because that's the legally binding one. So, um, so no, the Sea Org contract doesn't offer any exchange for anything. It really gives nothing. As far as the second half of your question on, uh, on people being disconnected who can then reach out for medical help or something, no, absolutely not. That would never happen in Scientology. If a person has been shunned or disconnected or declared suppressive or declared PTS or whatever the reason is for the, the disconnection, that's permanent. That's a, that's a done deal until the person who is declared comes to the church and says, I want to make amends, I want to, I want to handle my status with the church, and then goes through a series of steps called A to E, right? A, B, C, D, E, which are a, a long series of actions a person has to do in order to, um, you know, show that they are uh, worthy of being trusted and they pay back all their debts and they do all these amends, and which involves more money to the church so that they can uh, then be back in the church's good graces. If I, if I wanted to do that, you know, I could do that, and it would be, you know, it would involve all kinds of kissing ass and, and begging on my knees and all this kind of thing to, to get back in the church's good graces, and that's just never going to happen. So, um, so no, that's never an option for somebody who's in the church to reach out to somebody in that in that condition. Even if they're Mr. Moneybags and the guy in the church has no resources, that's just, disconnection is disconnection. So, there you go. Turd Ferguson, is it always true of a PTS person that they are connected to an SP, or can it be symptomatic of some other phenomena within the group? Did Hubbard genuinely believe that any human affliction was the result of being PTS SP? All right, so the subject of illness and people getting sick and having accidents and stuff like that. Uh, Hubbard kind of changed his tune over the years, right? PTSness was something that was developed in the mid-1960s, and up until then, Hubbard uh, claimed in the book Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health in 1950, uh, way before Scientology, that um, that something like 75% or 80% or something of all illness was uh, psychosomatic in nature, right? And that Dianetics could handle any psychosomatic illnesses, right? What caused by the, what he said was caused by the reactive mind. Um, so he still, so he said that Dianetics complemented the germ theory of disease. It didn't replace it. And so there were still illnesses and things that people could get. And, uh, and the accidents and people running into trouble and stuff wasn't really a thing until the mid-60s when Hubbard came up with this concept of a suppressive person and being connected to a suppressive person and that makes you a potential trouble source or PTS. Whether you're connected to the suppressive person right now, that it's a person that you know, or there's somebody in your environment who reminds you of a past suppressive person that you knew. So maybe, you know, you met this, uh, you know, guy Joe, and Joe sort of subconsciously reminds you or re-stimulates this earlier person you knew named Mark 
when you were a kid who used to beat you up and bully you and was a generally a suppressive kind of person towards you, then Joe could be, the guy you met now, could be the re-stimulator for the past suppressive person and you would still end up in all kinds of trouble. So uh, that's called a type 2 PTS, right? Whereas a type 1 is, you know, the actual suppressive is here in your environment right now. And a type 3 is where, a type 3 PTS is where the guy has just gone loony and everybody is suppressive to him, right? And they, everybody's a Martian and everybody's an FBI agent or something like that. So you have these, you know, extremes of, of this PTS condition. But Hubbard also did write that after this whole PTS thing came out and people who got sick or had accidents or were, you know, had trouble for the church, um, you know, sometimes you would do one of these interviews on these guys to find who the suppressive was and nothing was coming up and just nothing, 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 all big blanks, big zeros. And so then Hubbard started coming up with these ideas that maybe there was a thing called a false PTS condition. And that could be caused by a few things. I don't, I don't have it all memorized, but it's things like um, bad auditing, right? If the guy had gotten auditing from an auditor who just totally screwed the pooch and, and gave him a bunch of bad auditing, the guy could then start acting PTS, get into accidents, have problems. There was um, another phenomenon that's a little hard to explain, but basically it's called an outlist in Scientology, where if you know, you're, somebody indicates something to you about yourself or your life that's wrong, totally wrong, and, uh, and this causes you to start wondering what's wrong with you, and, and this can cause all kinds of issues and problems. And, you know, if, if somebody says, for example, that, you know, you're a racist pig, and you're not a racist pig, and you don't have a racist bone in your body, but somebody's accusing you of that, then that could create this kind of outlist thing where you start going, well, am I racist? No, I'm not racist. And it's just like, bleh. And then you start having accidents, or you get sick, or you have problems, and that could look like PTSness, but in fact, it's just the out list, right? And you would go into session and you would sort that out and with some Scientology auditing. Um, and Hubbard also talked about another, there's false PTS and the various reasons for that, but then there's also a pretended PTSness where a person, in this case, this is, this is great because this one is where a person has evil intentions and they are, they are acting on those evil intentions and messing things up and then claiming that they're PTS right? But in fact, it's just they're just pretending to be PTS. They're actually doing the destructive stuff on purpose, right? And Hubbard said that uh, the way you can tell if somebody has pretended PTS is if there is if when you say, you know, you take them in for an interview and you ask them who their suppressive person is and they start naming good people, right? So if somebody goes into a, a, an interview with an ethics officer to find out who they're PTS to and the answer is, well, my senior, uh, let's say they're a staff member, right? Or uh, David Miscavige, or L. Ron Hubbard, right? Or somebody like that, or the Sea Org guy, right? Who's, you know, running around the org yelling at everybody, right? <laughs> and giving them a hard time, making them stay up all night. I mean, the guy's acting like a total SP, right? Um, but if you say that, if that's the answer you come up with, is somebody who in the world of Scientology is perceived to be a good person, then you're pretended PTS, then it's, then it's on you. Oh, you're, you're, you're the one who's got evil intentions and you're just trying to get those good guys in trouble. So these are the various, you know, things that go on with, with PTS handlings and it can get a little complicated trying to sort through all this stuff with people. 
uh, but that's kind of how it works. But most of the time, most of the time, pretended PTS doesn't come up, and most of the time, the false PTS stuff doesn't come up too often. Uh, most of the time, if a person gets sick, person starts having accidents, person has their life fall apart, they're gonna, they're gonna, the, the first and strongest assumption is gonna be that there's some SP or re-stimulated SP in your life, and you're gonna need to deal with that, and you're gonna have to handle that person, you're gonna have to disconnect from them, and that's how that works. Jennifer Isaacs. Chris, what do you think of nocebos and placebos? What do you think of psychology of cognitive dissonance and Dunning-Kruger effect? How do these things keep people in cults or get them to lack critical thinking even if not in a cult? Well, I don't have any simple answer for this because um, this is a, you're asking about a lot of big topics. I mean, Dunning-Kruger is, is, a, is a big thing and cognitive dissonance is, a, is kind of a big thing. And, and, and so let's, let's try to break this down a little bit. Um, nocebos are where a person is given something that is, that is not really supposed to affect their body in any way, like it's a sugar pill, and they get worse. They get sick or they get, you know, some kind of, a, a, they, you know, non-optimum reaction occurs with them physically. And then you have placebos and placebos are where you, again, you get a sugar pill or you get something that is not supposed to really change your body in any way and yet you get better, right? So you have both of these phenomena occur. And I find it fascinating that this happens because it tells us that there is something about the way that our minds or our consciousnesses or awarenesses or whatever interact with our bodies that we do not understand. And if you start talking to medical researchers or professionals about this, you're not gonna get much of anything in the way of solid answers because the bottom line is nobody really understands why nocebos and placebos have those effects except that the mind has, you know, wherever the mind is, whether it's the brain or whether it's some you know ethereal thing, whatever you're referring to as the mind or consciousness or the person's will, it has the ability to affect the health and wellness of a body. And it's just a demonstrable, empirically observable phenomena that occurs. So uh, I, all I look at that and say is we don't get it. Nobody really understands it yet. And hopefully at some point along the line, enough studies will be done on this to actually start coming up with some theories that make sense. Right now, there's nothing. So that's kind of that. We do know about cognitive processes and problems. This, this has been the subject of study for a couple decades now. And again, this is not any kind of settled science or something. This is not even close. But at least we have some labels to describe some cognitive phenomena that occur, right? Cognitive dissonance being one of them where a person receives conflicting information and then, you know, what do I do with this? And they'll make various judgments about the information they receive based on their biases, their education, their background and experience. And it's going to be individual for different people as to what they do with it. But it sets up a situation where a person can start thinking in very strange ways or very irrational ways because they, you know, they don't know how to process these conflicting pieces of information. Um, so, so this is a problem, right? And then you add Dunning-Kruger on that where, you know, a person is not, the Dunning-Kruger effect is kind of, kind of complicated, but, but simply put, I think, as, as I understand it, it's the idea that a person is 
the more incompetent a person is or uneducated on a subject a person is, the more certain they'll be of their competence or, or how strongly they understand that thing. And it's fascinating. It's an absolutely fascinating thing. And it, and it speaks to the humility of wisdom where, you know, we've known this for a long, long time, I and mean, you find philosophers and, and, and uh, old religious leaders and stuff, uh, you know, talking about this centuries ago, that, that when you, you know, the more knowledge and, and intellectual uh, prowess a person has and the more wise they become through life and through life experience, the more humble they become. Whereas the guy, there's nobody who knows anything better than the guy who doesn't know anything about a subject, right? It's a fascinating phenomenon. All of these things, of course, play a role in cult thinking. Because cult thinking is where you take a belief system and you go to an extreme with it, right? Uh, and you lose, to the degree that you're going to, ex to an extreme, is to the degree that you are losing rationality and objectivism, right? The ability to look at a thing uh, and you know, have it or not have it. Look at, you know, again, accept it or not accept it. Believe it or not believe it. Um, and I think that the more a person can do that, uh, the better off they are, right? If it is that they don't like cling to these things. And the more we cling to some of our beliefs, the crazier some of us get. So, um, so all of these things are factors in cult thinking to a greater or lesser degree. And um, but I think in terms of handling, you know, making more, a more broad statement than that, I think you're getting into, um, you know, territory where you better have some studies and some research and some evidence under your belt. Because I, I for example, I'm not going to take this any further than what I just said as far as making value judgments about, you know, groups of people or something like that. I think a lot more research on this is needed um, so that we can, what we, what we can't do right now with this information as far as I understand it. And I would love to hear anybody in the comments section on this particular question give me any information or uh, experience of your own on this. But um, what we can't do right now from what I can tell is predict behavior very accurately based on the, the fact that we know these things. We explain certain behavior with this, but do we know what's gonna happen with people as a result I don't know. I don't know that we do, right? So, um, but I'm wide open to hearing about that because that's kind of something I'm really interested in right now. So that's kind of what I can say about all that right now. Hector Mojado, do you think that David Miscavige will introduce more modern tech to replace the e-meters and teletype currently in place? If so, what do you see replacing this outdated tech? If not, could you envision a situation where David Miscavige replaces and edits Hubbard's works to remove outdated references to e-meters and such? Also, do you think the dated tech influences would-be Scientologists and or current Scientologists, and how do you think it affects their perception of the Church of Scientology and Hubbard? Also, do you like Westworld? Okay, Hector. So, uh, first off, yeah, I enjoyed Westworld. I thought it was kind of fun. Um, a little deep, you know, a little hard to understand, a little cryptic. Um, you know, I, I never really liked watching a whole season twice to, you know, get all the little weird references and stuff, but I'll probably have to do that again before season two comes along. So, we'll see. Now, as far as the bigger question you have here, the truth is that Miscavige is already doing that, right? The Church of Scientology doesn't use teletypes anymore. They've converted all the telex system uh, to emails, 
right? That's actually the technology that's used now. It's all digitalized, uh, digitized rather, and, and digital uh, communications. And they just format the emails to look like telexes, right? But that's, but they don't use telex technology anymore. Um, also, the e-meters, the, the latest e-meter, the Mark 8, is totally, is a completely digital meter. It's not, uh, there's no, you know, mechanical stuff going on inside there, but in other, but the, the needle movement, that kind of thing, it's this, the circuitry has remained the same, but um, any mechanical parts have been removed from it, right? The old original e-meters had a, a, what's called a tone arm that you would use to adjust the needle, and it was kind of a, a, a mechanical thing, right? Now it's not. Now it's all digital. So, um, so that, you know, so he has changed and upgraded old, you know, outdated technology in Scientology. They're never going to get rid of e-meters. They are, the, the electropsychometer is way too important to the, the con of Scientology to get rid of it, right? There's just no way. And, there, and it's referenced in so many places that you would never be able to go back and edit all of it out of Scientology. Um, in fact, the OT levels demand the use of the meter because the meter is the, the meter responding to the, the, you know, the guy holding the cans is what convinces people who do those crazy OT levels that it's real, right? Oh, the needle moves, so it must be true, right? There's a, the, the, this device has all kinds of uh, mysticism and lore connected with it that is central to the, the belief system of Scientology. So, um, so there's some things that they're never going to get rid of. Uh, but there's all kinds of things that they've already gotten rid of as time has moved forward, although they'll still hold on to those names, right? Um, you know, the statistics and everything that, that management gets every week, that's all computerized now. Uh, tons of all the reports and, and uh, files and things that fly around in Scientology, all that used to be hard copy. A lot of it is digitized now. Um, I don't know if they're ever going to do that with those PC folders or not. Uh, those are all been, you know, when you're in a session and the auditor is keeping a worksheet of the of the what the the guy receiving the counseling, the preclear, is saying and what the meter is doing. That's all written down. I don't know that that's going to change. It it could. They could easily. They have a device now that that literally records the person's voice and what the needle is doing on the meter. And there's no reason that they couldn't use that device to record auditing sessions and, you know, play them back or whatever. Um, but I don't know that that all in itself would replace the, the worksheets, right? That, that the guy is sitting there writing what the preclear looks like and sounds like and what he's saying and stuff. So, um, so we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens with that as, as time rolls forward. But, but those are, those, you know, as far as whether this affects would-be Scientologists or current Scientologists, no, the technology, these bits of, of, of tech are not the thing that are the make-break of people's belief in Scientology. It's the philosophic points and the faith of Scientology that, that gets people hooked. The idea that they're a spiritual being is, is a, you know, is a faith-based idea that all Scientologists believe. And then they are, uh, you know, talked to and indoctrinated in such a way that they don't think it's a faith-based belief. They think it's a scientific belief, which, you know, speaks volumes about their understanding of science. But, you know, that's what they think.
Um, and that's the thing that hooks people into Scientology is that kind of indoctrination and that kind of, of you know, the, the, the um, well, basically just false information that they're given that they then believe is true. So, um, so that's the thing that hooks people in. And as far as, you know, would-be Scientologists, uh, you know, being repelled by old e-meters or teletypes or something, yeah, no. Uh, what people are being repelled from Scientology by now is the truth of Scientology, which is that it's an abusive, destructive cult, which is only interested in people's money. So, uh, and, and no amount of updating or editing their lectures is ever going to change that. So that's, you know, that's kind of how I, how I see that whole thing. It is time for Flash Answers. Leo Taxel. Does Hubbard have any living family members, and are they in the church, or was Nibs the last one? I guess you're asking for direct family members, like uh, daughters and sons and things, as opposed to extended family members, like Jamie DeWolf, who's a, a great-grandson, who I know and is, I'm friends with. As far as direct sons and daughters, uh, yeah, Diana Hubbard is still in the church. She is his daughter, and she still works at International Management, although she hasn't been seen in a long time, and who knows what kind of shape she's in. Probably not really good shape, because Miscavige was pretty down on her because she was Hubbard's last remaining um, you know, relative in the church. And uh, her daughter is uh, out of the church and, um, and is not you know, out in the public or anything, but that's Hubbard's granddaughter, so uh, I think that's the answer to your question. TJB Fan. I have a question left over from the second K. Rowe video about Sea Org medical handlings. Did Class 5 org staff get the same short shrift as Sea Org members on their medical needs? No. Life in the Class 5 orgs is wholly different from life in the Sea Org uh, because they're much more connected to the real world and they have to pay their own way in the real world. So uh, usually people in Class 5 orgs have medical insurance from their job or they, from their spouse uh, or something like that, right? Or they can get, you know, personally get on Medicaid or Medicare or, or get, you know, take advantage of, of health care, right? Whereas Sea Org members don't. Um, the attitudes that we talked about in our video with, that I did with Kay about sickness and health and PTS conditions and things like that, all that's the same. But in the Sea Org, it's more extreme, right? You don't have, in Class 5 Orgs, you don't have an isolation room or ISO. You don't have, you know, uh, people being dragged down to the emergency room uh, because there's nowhere else they can go because they don't have the money for it. I mean, that doesn't really happen at the Class 5 level the same way it happens in the Sea Org. Russell Peacock. Did you ever have a run-in with Grant or Elena Cardone or Tom Cummins? Yes, I met uh, Grant and Elena Cardone when, um, I think shortly after they first met, um, because they were doing the solo auditor course at uh, AOLA, the Advanced Org of Los Angeles, and I was supervising in that course room where I was somehow overseeing that course room at the time. And, um, and Grant came in, and he was kind of a big wig, and, uh, you know, and he was definitely uh, had attitude. I mean, wow, did he have attitude. And Elena was, I think, fairly new to Scientology at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, I, like she hadn't been in for a long time. I think she'd gone clear fairly quickly, if I recall right. But, um, but she was just this gorgeous, you know, supermodel type person. And, and so that was kind of our idea about her. Um, I know I never met Tom Cummins. I don't know who that person is. 
Stephen Willis. Logics, Chris. An informative video as always. This may seem like a weird question, but in what form do Sea Org members get paid? Check? Direct deposit? Cash in an envelope? Calorie shells? I can imagine having to deal with a bank could really bite into a Sea Org salary given that even a basic checking account carries a $10 or more monthly service fee these days. Not to mention actually finding enough time to get a bank branch might get tricky on a Sea Org schedule. Yeah, for sure. It is definitely tricky to have a bank account when you're in the Sea Org. Um, but people do it. Uh, I, I did it, right? And there was a bank, there was a Wells Fargo a couple blocks away from Big Blue, and that's where I would go, uh, you know, do my, my checking. Um, but money comes in cash. Uh, you get an envelope with your pay in it, or if it's Christmas or Sea Org Day or something, you get an envelope with uh, your bonus in it. And that's how it's distributed. It's never done by check. It's never done by direct deposit. If you're being reimbursed for funds that you spent when you were out on project or mission, you might get a check. But, but as far as the pay goes, it was always in cash. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thanks for watching. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comment section below. I will see them. I do pay attention. I try to answer them as I can, even if it takes me a few days or even, you know, longer sometimes. Um, and, you know, like I um, have mentioned before, if you love the show, like the show, think that it's informative, educational, and entertaining, then consider joining me on Patreon and uh, showing me some love that way because that's what keeps me going and allows me to do the research and work necessary to keep this channel uh, the way that it is and take it to even better heights. So thanks for coming around. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.